It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winnicle and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Michael Steindl. G'day Kay, g'day listeners. And Natalie Bucknell. Hello everybody. Today we're going to be talking about something quite different. It's about oxygen, which is fundamental to life. Not only is it essential for the survival of individual animals, but it regulates global cycles of major nutrients and carbon. Apparently, the oxygen content of the open ocean and coastal waters has been declining for at least half a century. This is largely because of human activities that have increased global temperatures and nutrients discharged to coastal waters. Here to tell us more about what is happening to oxygen levels and the phytoplankton producing oxygen in the oceans is Dr Larry Cahoon, who teaches a graduate biological oceanography course and a doctorate seminar on climate change and the oceans at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Hi Larry, thanks for joining us. Hello there, it's my pleasure. It's good to have you with us. Now firstly Larry, you've got the title of 2017 Distinguished Teaching Professor. How did you get that title? We have a, an award program every year here at UNC Wilmington, and um, I was nominated for that award by my department, and that's the easy part. After that, you submit a portfolio of all of your teaching efforts, your teaching philosophy, your evaluations, and that sort of thing. And there were two of us uh, from among the faculty across the university who were selected for that award. And it carries with it uh, the title that you see on my resume and a stipend, which does come in handy. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And well done. Yeah, thank you. Now, our discussion today is going to be about oxygen. And there's right. varying levels that are reported around the world, you know, from about 40 to 50% to 70 or 80% that's produced by the phytoplankton photosynthesis. What's your assessment right. of the levels? I think most of us uh, in the oceanographic community think about 50% of the total primary production on the planet comes out of the oceans, primarily phytoplankton. So that would account for about 50% of the total oxygen production, and the rest is terrestrial. Okay, and so how much of it is by phytoplankton photosynthesis? In the oceans, phytoplankton account for the, the vast majority of that. In coastal waters, you've got seaweeds or macroalgae and sea grasses, uh, which are pretty important very locally, but in terms of global oxygen supply or even the supply coming from the ocean, they're a much smaller contributor. Uh, the vast majority is, again, coming from the phytoplankton because you're dealing with such an incredibly large portion of the Earth's surface. And also there's some oxygen that's absorbed from the air into the waters, isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, one of the funny things about oxygen 
is that it's not terribly soluble in water. Carbon dioxide is a lot more soluble, partly because it's polar and uh, or or somewhat more polar. Let's put it that way. Oxygen's not, and it it does not dissolve into seawater very well. If you've got ten parts per million of oxygen in the water, you've got a lot. And in contrast, the atmosphere is twenty one percent, or two hundred and ten parts per thousand uh, in the atmosphere. So. There's a an issue with getting oxygen into solution in the first place. And then, of course, you have processes that consume oxygen, and then you have to consider the circulation of the oceans themselves because exchange with the atmosphere occurs at the surface, obviously. Hmm. So when the phytoplankton, phytoplankton sorry, produce the oxygen, it comes out as a gas, just goes straight into the atmosphere? It doesn't basically interact with the ocean and dissolve? If you're producing more oxygen than the water can hold, you reach what we call saturation levels, and in that case, the oxygen will certainly diffuse out. The extra oxygen will. If the oxygen content of the water is not saturated, that is, the concentrations are lower than the water can hold, it'll go back into solution and stay there. So we see net oxygen evolution that is the, the discharge of oxygen from the ocean waters in places that are very productive uh, and places where you've got uh, a lot of oxygen already present in the water. In areas where oxygen is undersaturated, the net flux at equilibrium will be from the atmosphere into the water. And is the solubility of oxygen in the water, does that increase or decrease with temperature? Uh, it's very strongly regulated by temperature. Warmer water can hold less oxygen. So if you warm up a water column, uh, you can actually cause the oxygen levels to go down, again, at equilibrium. And so uh, as you warm up the oceans with global warming, I guess that's where we're headed uh, with the question, uh, the ability of the oceans to hold that oxygen will go down. And so the the actual oxygen levels, the absolute concentrations, will decline. Is that why the oxygen levels have decreased by about 2% in the last 50 years? Yeah, that's oxygen levels in the ocean. I wanted to be clear about that. Uh, The atmosphere is, again, this enormous reservoir, and that's not changing in any significant way. We can measure that very, very precisely. We see little bitty changes, but uh, nothing to worry about. In the oceans, yes, we are seeing a decline in total oxygen content of the oceans. You have to uh, integrate over the entire volume of the oceans, and we are seeing statistically significant declines. They're not huge by and large, but they're there. Okay, so the declines aren't uniform, Larry? Right, they're not. So what sort of factors influence the Uh, disparity between different regions? Uh, The big factor that affects oxygen concentration, uh, aside from the physical controls, temperature is one of them. That sets the maximum solubility. Salinity has an effect on solubility. The saltier water holds a little bit less oxygen than fresh water. The big effect is from temperature. But the main driver for reduced oxygen concentrations uh, is respiration. That is the consumption of oxygen 
primarily by living things, but also by chemical reactions, oxidation reactions, working on uh, reduced substances. Some, some compounds like hydrogen sulfide react with oxygen pretty much on their own without biological help. So it's a combination of what we call biochemical oxygen demand and chemical oxygen demand. Most of that's biology. Larry, you kindly sent us some some papers in prep for this interview, and one of the articles you sent us um, projects further oxygen declines in the oceans in the 21st century, even with really ambitious emission reductions. I think you just touched on some of those mechanisms. Can you go into a bit more, and in particular, the different mechanisms happening in coastal estuary systems? Right. In coastal estuaries, the the big problem is nutrient overloading. About half the human population lives within 50 miles of a coast. And matter of fact, if you look at maps of most coastal countries, the big cities are almost invariably on a coastline. And what that means is that the sewage, the wastes and so forth, from all those people will wind up in the water. Uh, almost inevitably. There are very, very few treatment systems that don't do that. And nutrients stimulate primary production, that is phytoplankton growth. Now, you know, you might think at first glance, oh, more phytoplankton growth, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when you overstimulate that by adding nutrients, you create more biomass than that ecosystem can actually process through grazing and natural processes like that. And the consequence is that you then have these algae blooms that die off and microbes decompose that material. But when they do that, they use up oxygen by aerobic respiration and consume the oxygen. And the result is what we we colloquially term a dead zone. And those are becoming more common around the world, primarily in coastal areas. Most of that has to do with nutrient runoff from land. There are some other situations, but perhaps we'll touch on that later. So can you talk to us about the main ocean currents worldwide and how they're affected by increased water temperature? If you look at the major ocean basins, you uh, divide the Pacific and the Atlantic up uh, at the equator. So you have North Pacific, South Pacific, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, and then the Indian Ocean. To a little degree, geography affects how those current systems work, but By and large, they function as what we call gyres. Gyre is basically a circular motion of the entire basin. So, for example, in the North Pacific, the current gyre system is generally working in a clockwise direction. On the western side of the Pacific, near Japan, you have what's called the Kuroshio Current, and that carries seawater and the, the temperature and so forth northward. Uh, crosses the North Pacific, and then it's cooled off at that point and flows down along the uh, west coast of North America. Uh, in the North Atlantic, for example, you have probably the... the uh, maybe I'm being geocentric in my thinking, but I think the uh, the Gulf Stream's probably the most well-known of those currents. It could be just that I live a few miles from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have, uh, again, a clockwise circulation in the North Atlantic, and that carries uh, very warm water north into the North Atlantic and then cooler water south along the coast of Europe. 
uh, and it and it rotates around. The same thing happens in the southern hemisphere, in the South Atlantic, South Pacific, and to some degree, the Indian Ocean, which is shaped a little funny. You get in that case a counterclockwise circulation, and the the alternation between clockwise circulation in the northern hemisphere and counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere has to do with what we call Coriolis force, which is an apparent force caused by the rotation of fluids on the Earth's surface, does the same thing for the winds. And one of the important things to remember is that the prevailing wind patterns in the oceans set up those currents as well. For example, the prevailing winds at my latitude, I'm about 34 degrees north latitude here, uh, are from the southwest, and they blow from the southeast U.S. towards Europe. And that helps drive the circulation of the Gulf Stream. At the same time, if you go to somewhat more southerly latitude in the northern hemisphere here, prevailing winds are uh, out of the, the northeast. And the same thing is true in the Pacific. And so the winds are being acted upon by Coriolis force. They are in turn pushing the currents in a manner consistent with Coriolis force. So you get this general counterclockwise circulation in the southern hemisphere basins. So it's, it's physics that drives the circulation primarily. Are you, Larry, are you saying that these currents and winds are then affected by the, the rising temperatures in the ocean? That's an excellent question. One of the things that drives the atmospheric circulation, which in turn helps to drive the oceanic circulation is the convection system set up in the atmosphere, the resulting jet streams and all of that. Now, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, so my explanation will be necessarily short and incomplete, but hopefully not wrong. Um, if you start at the equator where you have the maximal amount of heating, the atmosphere around the equator heats up and it rises. Hot air will rise. As it rises, and it does this across the entire planet, that rising air eventually expands, cools, drops out its moisture. So the equator tends to be a very rainy place. This is where you get rainforests. Uh, and out over the ocean, this is where you get lots of the thunderstorm belt, convection systems, and so on. That air can't rise indefinitely. It'll go up 8 or 10 miles, and then it moves poleward, that is, toward the respective poles. And as it does, it cools off some more, eventually becomes dense enough to sink. When it does, and it's typically, oh, 15, 20, 25 degrees latitude either way, that sinking air, as it gets closer to the surface, is compressed by atmospheric pressure, warms up, it's very dry, and this is where you get deserts. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you that Australia is a very, very dry continent, and that's because it has sinking air coming down over the continent and creating a very big desert. I mean, Australia is surrounded by ocean water. You'd think it would be a lot wetter, mm. but it's that convection system that's creating that desert. The Sahara Desert is created on the northern side of the equator by exactly the same process. Now, as you heat up the planet, that convection system is projected to get stronger. You're putting more heat into the system. 
And one of the forecasts of global change models, global climate models, is that as you increase that convection system, you're going to shift those patterns of air movement polewards so that we'll see the desert regions begin to expand toward the poles. In the northern hemisphere, we're projecting, and we're already seeing this, that the desert conditions you find in North Africa will actually expand towards southern Europe, uh, Spain, Italy, and Greece. And that's precisely what we're seeing. We're seeing hotter temperatures there, drier conditions, more drought, less rain, and the problems that go with that. Is there a corresponding extension of the tropics region as part of that? Yeah, yeah. The convection is going to be stronger, so we think we're going to get more rainfall around the tropics. Now, it kind of depends on the geography. If you're far away from a source of, of real moisture, that may change. The big rainforests, well, let's put it this way. If humans weren't a factor, and that was the only thing going on, it was just heating the planet up, yeah, you'd see the rainforests expand. But humans are a factor in rainforests. We cut them down. They're actually seeing declines in rainfall in the Amazon rainforest because we've uh, cut down so many trees, which pump water back up into the air. But that's, that's a regional scale effect. As you get towards the poles, uh, it gets more complicated. That's about uh, as much as I want to say about this without <laughs> getting myself into trouble. So you, you've explained that in terms of what's happening on land, but in terms yeah. of what's happening in the oceans, the, you, right. you know, we're getting global warming, um, we're getting hotter oceans. Yeah. They're, they're the, the heat sinks of the world, aren't they, the oceans? Right, right. Yeah, that's right. The oceans absorb approximately 90% of the total heat flux that we've uh, added to the planet. And that heat is distributed as increasing temperatures at depth. Certainly we're seeing surface warming, but we're also picking up significant warming all the way down as deep as we've measured. The primary effect is close to the surface, and that leads to the observation that uh, although the oceans are a thermal buffer in a strong sense, they're also not at equilibrium with the atmosphere. And one of the problems that we expect in the long run, you know, long after we're all dead, is that the heat capacity of the oceans is very, very slow to fill up. The oceans will not come to equilibrium. That is, the, the actual heat content of the oceans will not reach a steady state for a very long period of time. Even if we stopped forcing the warming of the planet right now, the oceans would continue to warm, coming to thermal equilibrium for several hundred years. Mm. That's quite a long oh. leg time, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it is. Geologically, it's a blink of an eye, but for us, it's, it's slow. So what does this warming of the oceans mean in terms of nutrients at, at the higher levels and the lower levels? There are several things going on with global warming effects on the ocean and, and primary production. The very first one that needs to be brought up is stratification. The ocean is primarily layered from top to bottom by temperature. Warm water is less dense. As you warm the surface water, it tends to get less dense, tends to stay stably stratified, therefore, 
colder water down below. As you keep warming it up, keep strengthening that stratification. This has been going on for quite a while. We've got very good temperature data. Temperature was one of the things that oceanographers learned how to measure very accurately, even at depth. It, it was a cumbersome process up till electronics came uh, along, but uh, nevertheless, we've got really good temperature data from a lot of places. And so we are seeing warming of the ocean, and we're seeing increasing stratification. That stratification limits the ability of the ocean to turn over, that is to mix the surface water with the deeper water. At the same time, all of the biological processes that operate the ocean generate biomass, phytoplankton cells, zooplankton, fish, and so on. When they die and when they excrete stuff, that stuff sinks. And the stratification doesn't really stop most of that from sinking. And so that material, that organic matter, contains nutrients. The result of that sinking process is that nutrients tend to be stripped out of the surface waters, transported into the deep ocean, where they're eventually decomposed and recycled, put back into solution. Normally, the oceans would turn over in such a way that nutrients would come back to the surface and support more production. With warming, excessive warming, we'll put it that way, that process begins to slow down. The result is that the supply of nutrients to support further phytoplankton growth and further biological production slows down. And that means that the oceans generate less organic matter. They fix less carbon. That's what phytoplankton do. They produce less oxygen. And it becomes a vicious cycle. There's actually what we call a positive feedback in that. Mm. Um, if the oceans are pumping cold water to the surface, bringing nutrients up, upwelling zones do this, for example, you're generating lots of production, you're fixing inorganic carbon, carbon dioxide, stripping that out of the surface waters, and turning that into organic matter that sinks. That carbon dioxide that was taken out of the water is replaced by carbon dioxide that comes out of the atmosphere. Some of that is carbon dioxide we put there. So what we have normally is what we call the biological pump. Uh, in essence, the biology of the ocean will take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the deep sea. If you shut off the nutrient supply by stratification, you slow down that biological pump. That allows that carbon dioxide that would have been removed to stay in the atmosphere, and that causes more warming. That's a positive feedback. So we had a carbon sink model that yep. we've started to, to destroy. Right. And if there's one thing we don't need in the whole global warming scenario, it's another positive feedback. Yeah, um, yeah. Positive feedbacks kill you. <laughs> yes, and, and there's a lot of them in the, in the climate scenario. Yes, there are. Larry, you, you've talked about the stratification in, in the ocean system. There's another whole aspect, which is the optimum life conditions and temperatures for the various phytoplankton. Can you talk us through right. that? Sure. In addition to the, 
the effects of warming on stratification and oxygen solubility. The phytoplankton are, of course, creatures of the conditions in which they evolved. The oceans becoming warmer mean that the phytoplankton are now being forced to adapt to a warmer ocean. They're not like us. You know, we regulate our body temperatures. Phytoplankton and virtually everything in the ocean, except the, the higher uh, vertebrates, the, the mammals, the birds, uh, and so forth, um, can't regulate their temperature. Their metabolic processes are a function of temperature. And That's the, called ectotherms? The physiological factor in there is that enzymes, which catalyze all kinds of reactions, all kinds of metabolic processes, typically are optimized to function at particular temperatures. And so if it's too cold or too warm, they may not operate properly. You know, for example, with humans, when you become hypothermic, that is your body temperature drops from uh, 37 centigrade down to, let's say, 35, you begin to get into trouble because your enzyme functions, especially in your brain and other important parts, begin to fall apart. The enzymes just aren't doing their jobs right. You get into metabolic trouble, and that, that's the reason that hypothermia is so dangerous, is that body functions begin to fail. The same thing applies to other organisms. Phytoplankton living in the tropical ocean, for example, are naturally exposed to warm temperatures. However, that doesn't mean that they're adapted to warmer temperatures. They're adapted to the conditions in which they have evolved. We are changing the temperatures of the ocean relatively rapidly by evolutionary standards. And so the question then becomes, can the phytoplankton as a whole adapt to those changing temperatures, or is that going to cause trouble for them, showing up as populations that fail? changes in competitive outcomes, or are we going to see evolutionary responses on a fairly rapid timescale? That's an open question. We don't know. Clearly, they have adapted through temperature changes on a geological timescale, so that's possible. But again, we're changing the planet very quickly by geological and evolutionary standards, so it's an open question. We think we're going to find some situations especially regionally, where temperatures can change rapidly. We may find some situations where some populations do get into trouble. We'll be looking for that. So if I understand correctly, there are thousands of different species of these phytoplankton, all, oh, yeah. all adapted for different temperature ranges and a little window, a temperature niche. And does the research show anything about how quickly they fail if you take them outside of that temperature niche, like out? Outside, um, the um, studies that have been done that I've seen indicate that the phytoplankton can handle temperatures that are cooler than their optimum relatively well in the sense that, you know, they don't crap out. They, um, that's they just not slow a down. Scientific term. Uh, <laughs> they, they don't get into serious trouble. Their metabolic rates will slow down as temperatures cool off. But that's not necessarily true if temperatures go above that optimum very far. In other words, they're adapted to cooling off, but they're not adapted to warming up as well. That may take evolution to drive a change. Uh, physiologically, they tend to do poorly if you raise the temperature a little bit above their optimum. 
we see the same thing with uh, coral bleaching. I think that's a, a vivid example of, of that physiological response. Corals bleach, that is, they expel the zooxanthellae, the symbiotic microalgae that live inside of their tissues. If the temperature goes uh, one or two degrees centigrade above the normal range, it doesn't take much. If it's cooler than that, no problem. But if you get warmer than, than what they're used to, boom, you have a bleaching event. And so it looks like at least some of the biology is very sensitive to relatively small increases in temperature. Along with the temperature variations, Larry, I guess those changes to oxygen and carbon dioxide levels that you were referring yep. to earlier, I, I guess that they have a significant impact yeah, you've got a couple of interwoven problems there. One is, of course, that oxygen solubility goes down as temperature goes up. So that's going to be a problem by itself. Respiration rates go up as temperature goes up. So the consumption of oxygen will go up even as the availability of it goes down just from rising temperatures. If you generate more carbon dioxide, whether it's from respiration in the water or it's from us adding it to the atmosphere and then having it pumped into the ocean by diffusion processes. You also change the thermodynamics of the situation. It's complicated. It's one of those things that you learn in chemistry, and not simple chemistry. It's, uh, I'd call it physical chemistry, but it has to do with Gibbs free energy and other terms that will probably have everyone cringing <laughs> if they've ever heard of it. And if you haven't heard of it, well, don't cringe. It won't bite you. The, the bottom line is that when you add CO2 to the water, as is happening, you're going to reduce the solubility of oxygen as well. It's a thermodynamic thing. So three different processes, the direct temperature effect, increased respiration, and thermodynamics. One way that I might express that is that if you put more CO2 molecules into the water, there's less room for oxygen molecules. I'm surprised um, in those three factors you haven't mentioned increased acidity. Ah, yeah. So, well, <laughs> yes, we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, when you add carbon dioxide to water, um, it reacts with the water to form carbonic acid, which is a weak acid, but it dissociates, and it lowers the pH. pH is a logarithmic scale of acidity or alkalinity, depending on your point of view. The oceans have typically had a pH of around 8.2, which is somewhat alkaline. Uh, that's important because it allows... Uh, the organisms that secrete calcium carbonate skeletons like corals, mollusks, and so forth, to precipitate calcium carbonate out and make their skeletons. Um, if you lower the pH, and again, it's a logarithmic scale, so a pH of 9 is 10 times more alkaline than a pH of 8. A uh, pH of 7 is neutral. Um, meaning that the alkalinity and the acidity are exactly in, in balance. But if you lower the pH, you're adding to the acidity of the water. That makes several things tougher. One is this calcification that I've mentioned. That's the one that gets a lot of attention. Um, with pH, we also find that organisms are adapted 
to certain pH levels, and pH typically doesn't vary much in the oceans. It's very well buffered. What we have observed is approximately a 0.1 pH unit of decline in alkalinity or increase in acidity. That's about a 30% increase when you convert the logarithm to regular arithmetical scale. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And that's significant for a couple reasons. Um, aside from the calcification problem, which is big, uh, a lot of the respiratory physiology of organisms that have circulatory systems is affected by um, pH. Um, I'll use humans as an example because we know humans rather well, and and all of us listening are humans, I would hope. Um, (laughs) uh, Your blood also has uh, a very carefully regulated pH. When you add carbon dioxide to your bloodstream, like by vigorous exercise, it lowers the pH in your blood. Your brain senses the change in pH, and it increases your respiration rate. Um, you think it's to add oxygen to the system. In fact, what it's doing is dumping carbon dioxide. Okay, so that, that's a physiological response. Here's why it's important. Um, in humans and many other critters, including fishes and, and other organisms with oxygen-carrying proteins in their blood, we have hemoglobin, for example. The ability of the molecules like hemoglobin, to bind and carry oxygen is strongly affected by pH. If you drop the pH a little bit, the ability of hemoglobin to bind oxygen goes way down. And so your respiratory efficiency is very sensitive to pH. Now, humans live in the air, and we breathe uh, you know, air that's loaded with oxygen, and it's real easy for us uh, you know, to offload CO2. This is very little of that in the atmosphere relatively for us. And it's very easy to get more oxygen inside of us. Fishes, on the other hand, live in an environment where there's a lot of CO2 already in the water and very little oxygen. If you mess around with the ability of the hemoglobin that fishes use to carry oxygen in their circulatory system, what you're doing is making it harder for them to breathe. So a little change in the external pH can actually affect respiration by fishes and a whole lot of other organisms. And, uh, you know, the more you drop the pH, the worse that's going to get. Can that be addressed by evolution? Yeah, but uh, if you think about fishes, some of those fish have a very long lifespan. Evolution is basically replacing one set of organisms with a set of offspring that are better adapted. So, you know, good luck, Grandpa, you're going to die off. Maybe your kids will be better adapted to this world, but if you're a 70-year-old fish, that's a long time. And it sounds like so there's the, so, so many things they have to adapt to, too, doesn't it? The oxygen yeah, levels, the carbon right. dioxide that's acidification. Right. The- Evolution has both a, a, a beneficial aspect and a very cruel aspect to it. The harder things are for organisms, I mean, the tougher the environment, uh, you know, the more likely it is that they're going to die from something, the stronger the natural selection for those that can actually handle it. But what that means is lots of mortality, a lot of failures. 
Mm-hmm. So when you put a lot of stress on an ecosystem, you're going to kill off an awful lot of organisms and probably even a lot of species. The ones that are left will be adapted to the new conditions, but they may not. Uh, they definitely won't be the same assemblage you had before. It'll be different. And not only that, the whole food chain depends on all these different species. So right, right, yeah, and and the food chain we have. Uh, you know, is the product of, of many thousands of years of evolution. You know, we have come along and we take advantage of that. You know, there are certain things that we find very large numbers of so we can eat them. They're, uh, you know, economically worth going after. Those are the organisms that are, by definition, very successful under the current conditions. If those conditions change and those successful organisms become less successful, not only will that have direct impacts on us if we're using those successful organisms as direct resources, but you'll have effects on the whole ecosystem that supported them, past tense. And so we'll have to change our response to that. So it, it makes it, let's just say, it makes the future a very interesting one. Are the, are the phytoplankton pretty much the start of the food chain? Yeah, we typically view the phytoplankton, your your basic primary producers, as the base of the food chain. Uh, certainly there are bacteria and things like that. And in coastal areas, you've got other kinds of primary producers. But for the global ocean, the vast majority of the organic matter being formed from inorganic stuff is in the form of phytoplankton. Well, that, that's pretty scary then, really, isn't it? Because phytoplankton are the beginning of the food chain on which yeah. we rely, and they also right. produce a lot of oxygen, 50% of the yep. oxygen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's more to it. Not all phytoplankton are created equal. <laughs> um, phytoplankton come in a tremendous array of species, for one thing, but they come in different sizes, too. In the open ocean, you typically, when I say open ocean, I mean way out from shore where the water is very crystal clear and, and deep blue. You typically find phytoplankton ver- that are very different from what you find near coastal regions. The phytoplankton in the open ocean, uh, which have uh, you know very low nutrient availability, are typically very, very small. The coastal phytoplankton, especially in upwelling zones, are very large-celled organisms in comparison. They're all tiny by our standards. You know, there's some of them you can see with the naked eye, just barely, and others that are, you know, the size of bacteria. But the smaller they are, the harder they are for the larger organisms to find and eat. And so you wind up with a very different food chain in nutrient-poor, open-ocean, stratified kinds of places. And so you wind up with what we call a microbial loop where the very, very small phytoplankton are eaten by very, very small grazers, and you've got bacteria recycling the dead and excreted organic matter, and the nutrients are recycled in place. There's not a lot, and you wind up with a food chain that does not support the larger organisms that eventually support the fish, the big things that we humans like to prey upon. So you have very different food chains. One of the consequences then of warming the ocean, stratifying the ocean, is that we're going to see more of a small organism food chain that's less productive in terms of what we want to harvest. 
Now, we're already seeing that in some number of places. In um, discussion we had with you last week, you mentioned, again, coming back to these uh, different habitats that the phytoplankton had adapted to, that the ones in the warm areas basically were so small that they weren't sinking. And so this, I think you, you covered it a bit at the start of the interview where you talked about um, not so much dead zones but uh, static layers of warm water. But you also mentioned that these phytoplankton were almost held up by Brownian motion and their waste yep. also, and that was creating sort of equivalent of a dead zone, not not an anaerobic zone. But right. yeah, and, and you see those areas enough. increasing dramatically, yeah. don't you? Exactly. When I was young and, and a student way back, I remember the prevailing view of the open oceans, the central gyres, was that they were biological deserts and that there was very little going on. It turns out there's a lot going on, but it's all very, very, very tiny things. And unless you have the right tools and the right mindset, you know, with which to investigate them, you don't see it. And it's true that what you don't see is large quantities of the bigger life forms that we're used to seeing in coastal waters. And so, you know, the view that the open ocean was a biological desert was a very much a human-centric point of view. There's plenty of bacterial things going on, but in terms of their utility to us, not much. So, you know, turn more of the ocean deep blue and very warm, and there will be a lot of bacterial stuff happening, but it won't be much use to us. Well, hopefully it can work. We had a fascinating interview with Dr. Bonnie Monteleone, and she was talking about the five gyres around the world and how they're trapping all the plastics. Yep. So maybe they can do something with those. They're dissolving and coming into our food chain. Uh, <laughs> there are probably some bacteria that can metabolize those. I would say one problem is that plastics are almost all carbon. No, no nitrogen and phosphorus to be had, and bacteria need both of those. So in a nutrient-depleted situation like that, bacterial breakdown of uh, plastics probably won't be much of a factor. I don't know that adding nutrients will necessarily make things a lot better. Our experience, though, with oil spills, with, you know, lots of hydrocarbons, right? Mm. If you add fertilizer, nitrogen and phosphorus to, uh, you know, for example, a beach that's been oiled, the microbes present in that beach sediment, the, the ones naturally there, some of them anyway, can metabolize that oil. And they'll break it down using those nutrients. That was tried when the Exxon Valdez crashed in 1989. And they found that, yeah, it took a while. It's a cold place, and it takes a while for the bacteria to do the job. But they did the job. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what happens with natural oil spills in the ocean anyway. The bacteria will break that stuff down if they have enough nutrients. I suspect with plastics, which have been designed not to break down, it may be a tougher challenge, but still, you're going to have to have nutrients if you ever manage to find bacteria that can metabolize those things. Larry, just coming back to the um, the phytoplankton and these micro ones in the warm areas, yep. which you predict to increase dramatically, it seems to me there's two broad streams or, or methods with climate research. 
One is people actually going out and practically measuring things, which people like you going out and dipping buckets in the ocean and checking what's going right. on. But by far the major section seems to be the modelling and the, the IPCC yep. seems to place enormous um, emphasis on that. Bringing in what you said about the phytoplankton being asymmetric in their response to temperature variations and suffering right. badly on the upside, the are the models capturing that? Some of the work you sent us seem to say that they weren't, that they were assuming a linear response. In fact, it's it's much more catastrophic than that. Let me give a little background. The uh, you know the IPCC reports, which are put out every five or six years, are really very large literature reviews. They're not so much original research as a synthesis of everything we think we know. Or thought and we knew six years ago when the when the research came out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so, you know, they look at the published work, they look at data sets, they look at models and how they're progressing. So when we have information in the literature, which we do, about phytoplankton responses to temperature, depending on what kind of model you're building, you know, if it's just atmospheric, well, you know, whatever, but if you're looking at those biological interactions, the modeling can then incorporate the shape of that response, the the, the actual equation that best fits the data. And so that's the kind of thing, once you can express it mathematically, you can put it into a model and then, you know, that becomes uh, an element in your overall predictions. Um, So, you know, as we move along, you know, let me say a few things about modeling. Smart guys out there, I was trying to think of something (laughs) non-offensive to say, (laughs) wise guys, We'll say all models are wrong, but some models are useful. That's one of the phrases. There are two uses for models. One, of course, is prediction. That's what you think you're getting with a model is a prediction. And that those predictions are testable. You kind of wait and see, or you look for, you know, the, the predicted outcomes, and that sort of thing. The other thing that's good about modeling is that it tells you what you need to know next. Mm-hmm. And that's rather less well appreciated. When when we, we try to model, I don't mean me, I'm not a modeler, but when we, the scientific community, goes through the effort of modeling, one of the things we're looking for is the key pieces of information, the key equations, the key relationships that have a big impact on the output of the model but are not poorly or you know, but are not well understood. And so that's a, a very important aspect of modeling, and it's one of the reasons we do it, is let's see how the system works, uh, you know, how we think it works. Let's see what these models tell us, and then let's play around with the different variables. And if we don't know how those variables affect things, maybe we need to find out. And let's see if we can prioritize that. So that's a very important part of this is, Try to figure out what it is you don't know and ought to know. Mm, That's a good point. Larry, can we get back to the ocean currents that you talked about earlier? In the articles that you sent us, it seems that the Southern Ocean strongly influences the Earth's climate and biogeochemistry. Can you outline what the processes that are affected there by ocean warming are? Yeah, the Southern Ocean... You know, there's no hard and fast boundary for it. It's basically everything between Antarctica and maybe 50 degrees south latitude, something like that. It seems like it just Uh, skirts on the southern tips of Australia, so that's why we're interested. Right, right, yeah. You go south of Australia or south of 
South Africa or South America and yeah. you're into the Southern Ocean. Yeah. The dominant feature there is the westerly circulation. You get a tremendous amount of circumpolar winds, and that blows the ocean in a strong westerly direction you know, from the west toward the east. The circumpolar circulation, in turn, sets up a complex circulation around Antarctica. You have upwelling. It's a complicated mix of things. The Southern Ocean, at least during the Southern Hemisphere summer, when you have plenty of sunlight, is extraordinarily productive. You get very big blooms of big phytoplankton, big diatoms, things like that. This is what supports your populations of krill, whales and seals and penguins and things like that. Tremendously productive food chain, very seasonal. We think that that circulation will change with warming. Some of that has to do with sea ice and the loss of sea ice around Antarctica. Some of it has to do with the strength of the wind field and and the placing of the wind field and the result that it has on ocean circulation. And so we suspect, this, this one article makes the point, and it's a modeling effort, that the net effect of all of that will be to weaken the flux of deep ocean water and nutrient-rich waters in particular toward the equator from the southern ocean. That water doesn't move at the surface. It moves at a shallow depth, 100, 200 meters. moves slowly, but it's a primary source of nutrients for much of the southern hemisphere oceans. And if that nutrient supply is cut off or reduced, let's put it that way, the net effect would be lower production. A lot of the production, by the way, in the central gyre systems is fairly deep. It's what we call a deep chlorophyll maximum. Chlorophyll is a biomass indicator for phytoplankton. Much of the central gyre systems throughout the world, all five of them, are stratified most of the time down towards the base of the thermocline, that is the temperature gradient that creates the stratified conditions you have warm water overlying cooler water. The cooler water would normally have more nutrients in it. And so the phytoplankton that live in that environment have to balance being deep and away from the light as opposed to being close to the nutrient supply. And the result is you get, I won't say an optimum, but a combination of just enough light flux and enough access to nutrients to support a larger population of phytoplankton in a layer down deep, not at the surface. If you want to find the phytoplankton out in the central gyre, look deep, 100, 120 meters, that sort of thing. If the nutrient supply is reduced by these circulation effects with the southern ocean, then that deep chlorophyll maximum layer will decline in magnitude, and that's going to have impacts on the whole food chain. Larry, the, um, the the timescales here um, are very important, and I keep yep. saying to people, I'm the world's worst project manager, I'll leave everything till the last minute and beyond, but even I can see that what we're seeing now is what we did 1,500 years ago, and, and we haven't begun to see what we've locked in. One of the papers discusses continued high levels of greenhouse gas emissions could suppress marine biological productivity for a millennium. If it were possible to limit global warming to less than 1.5 C, and we know that's an extremely huge if at this stage, 
How quickly yeah. could that be reversed, and what would the processes be? Boy, uh, <laughs> the easy one. several <laughs> things operating there. One is that, as I mentioned earlier, the oceans take a long time to come to thermal equilibrium. So if we stabilize the Earth's temperature, that, that surface temperature, it's important to bear in mind that's what they're talking about. Yep. Um, and surface temperature is a combination of the lower atmosphere temperature, the land surface temperature, and the surface ocean temperature. Those temperatures are considerably higher than the temperatures of the interior of the ocean, the deeper water column. Mm -hmm. There are processes that operate to keep the deep ocean cold. I may talk about those in a minute or two, but the oceans turn over very slowly. You have downwelling water, deep water formation, we call it, and you have upwelling, where upwelling brings colder water to the surface. The turnover time for the oceans is on the order of hundreds to a thousand years or so. In other words, the time for all of the ocean water to reach the surface and whatever the surface temperature is and then cool off and sink and come back up again, somewhere like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. the, the deep water formation, let me explain that, takes place around the continental ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica. What happens with the ice sheets is they radiate heat out into space. They're extremely cold. The air over them is extremely cold. It precipitates out all the moisture in it, and that forms the ice mass itself as snow that compacts the glacial ice. But that air is also very dense because it's cold. It tends to sink over those continental ice sheets and then blow out across the edge of the ice and out over the ocean. That air has actually warmed a little bit as it's been sinking, but it's very dry air. And as it blows out over the ocean, it supercools the nearby ocean waters. That supercooling is a result of two things. One, the air is cold, and it cools off the ocean water directly. The other is that that air is dry. Evaporative cooling. And it evaporates some of that ocean water. And in the course of evaporating it, it cools it again. Evaporative heat loss is really amazing. What we call the latent heat of evaporation mm. is 540 calories per gram for, to change water into water vapor. Okay? So very dry air evaporates some water and takes an awful lot of heat out of that water. And the result is that water is a little saltier and a lot colder than it would have been and it sinks because it's now denser. That water is also very rich in oxygen, by the way, because cold water holds more oxygen, mm -hmm. and the wind has been roughing it up, mixing it with the air. The deep water formation is how the oceans stay cold. As long as we have ice sheets, that'll continue to work. Okay, So in the near term, before we melt the ice sheets completely, we're going to have water circulating through the oceans, going down, coming back up eventually, and thereby transferring some of the heat from the surface of the planet into the deep ocean. And there will be some new equilibrium that, that's reached, depending on where we stabilize the temperature. If we stabilize the temperature in such a way that the ice sheets don't melt, then the ocean will continue to have this sinking cold water keeping the, the interior of the oceans cold, and that will reduce 
the total effect of that that heating on the surface of the planet so we'll that's, come back to some kind of equilibrium yeah that's a double tipping point then if we lose those yep. sheets we lose the albedo the reflectivity um oh, yeah, a, lot yeah, of yeah. Back. a lot of things that go wrong when you melt the ice sheet yeah and and, and, know, and we're i think toast at that point and you've said that yeah, word it's I mean, not literally we're toast <laughs> it's uh, not you melt the ice sheets which will take hundreds of years <laughs> you know we're 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 fried we're cooked <laughs> Because Larry, that's the thermostat for the planet. Melt that, and we're we're gone. Well, okay. Larry, you actually said when, not if. Mm-hmm. So, when do you think yeah. that is likely to happen? Yeah, uh, that's that's a hard forecast. It depends on us. <laughs> so, mm. uh, you know, at, at the current rate of emission increases, you know, we're going to get there sooner. I mean, not in my lifetime, but. Mm. You know, they're they're talking a couple hundred years to melt Greenland. Those are very difficult projections to make. Those projections have to make assumptions about the strengths of feedbacks, about other processes that can't be factored in yet, and you're talking about a very large mass. Mm. It's um, um, so, it, it's know. both um, a long time and blindingly fast. Larry, we are out of time. Can I just ask you one more question? Take off your science yep. hat and just... As a human, how stuffed are we? Well, <laughs> uh, very. I'm glad I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, I hear you. I mean, we've pushed the climate system very hard, and we're continuing to push it hard. Positive feedbacks of some wide variety have kicked in, and that means that the challenge ahead of us is extraordinary. It's going to take heroic measures to stabilize the climate at some new set point. And, you know, we're going to live in a different world than the one we're used to. On that note, Larry, thank you very much for your time today. And You're welcome. If listeners are interested in following this up, where can they find out more about this? For those who have a technical bent and don't mind reading science, I would recommend the AR5 report from the IPCC. That's very technical, though. Wonderful to have you today, and um, you've sure. been so good at explaining all these different scenarios and processes that are going on in our oceans and, indeed, in the atmosphere. really appreciate your oh, time. Not a problem. We've been speaking to Dr Larry Cahoon from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, about ocean warming and the effects on oxygen levels and also the processes that phytoplankton go through. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. For those of you who have listened to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.